GeoQuest community, welcome to this special series that we're doing with the leaders of the RIA aggregator and integrators. So these are the firms in the registered investment advisory industry that are doing what is now 91% of the deals, which are mainly these private equity funded, larger RIAs that are looking to buy up and are buying up and doing many, many deals in the space. Other RIA firms, whether they're independent or sometimes from IBD platforms or even doing some deals with wirehouse uh, advisors. Um, so we are fortunate enough to have some of the, the leading firms in the industry doing these deals, and we have them on uh, in this special series so that people who are interested, right, advisors in the industry who are potentially interested in selling their firms can understand the different models out there. Because one of the benefits of the uh, evolution and the maturation of the RA space has been that there are more aggregators and integrators, there's more funding for these, there's more private equity. Uh, but as that happens, there also is more confusion as to all these different options out there. What are the different models? Why is one better than the other? What is the best fit for me? So the purpose of this series is to give the opportunity for each of these amazing firms to talk about their different models, talk about who they're looking to target, who they attract, and have you be in a better position as a potential seller to understand your options. And for those of you who are not in the RA space, you know, I would listen anyway. It's also a fascinating look at how the industry has evolved and how an industry matures, and frankly, what the different acquisition models are that could be applied even in other industries. So check out all the videos in this special series on the RIA aggregator and integrators. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Pat McLean is the co-founder and senior partner at Allworth Financial. He's a keynote speaker at financial conferences nationwide. For more than two decades, he's co-hosted Allworth's Money Matters, one of the longest-running financial topic radio programs and podcasts in the country. Pat has led Allworth to be ranked 23 on the Barron's list of top RIAs in America and has been recently named one of 10 icons and innovators by Investment News for 2021. Over the past several years, Pat and his business partner, Scott Hansen, have introduced uh, Orworth to numerous new markets and have expanded the company's service offerings to include tax planning and accounting. Through a combination of both organic expansion and growth via acquisition under past direction, Orworth Financial has now grown to over $15 billion in assets under administration. Pat, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Corey. So listen, you know, this is a very interesting time. And the reason why I wanted to do this uh, special series on aggregators and integrators is because, you know, we've come to a place where, you know, we've never been in this RA, independent RA space in terms of the number of deals, the amount of money in the space, the valuations and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we represent a lot of uh, sellers in the space. And frankly, great news is there are many more options. And the challenging news is that they're trying to figure out 
what's the difference between, you know, all the options out there, the different models, what is the best fit for them? So, you know, I'm excited to have you on for you to be able to talk about our all uh, particular model and approach and, you know, value proposition out to these advisors so they can understand what you're offering. So before we get to that specifically, though, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm sure being the co-founder and the leader of a RIA firm, an aggregator probably wasn't it back then, but you tell me. Oh my gosh. What did I want to be when I was eight and 10? Not picked on. <laughs> Let's yeah. start with that. I grew up in a big Irish family. Okay. Uh, so we'll go with that. I knew I wanted to be in business of some sort yep. and I knew I didn't want to be poor. So there's, there's not a lot more than that. And we didn't grow up poor, but we certainly didn't grow up upper middle class either. So uh, yeah, I came from a family of five kids and, uh, you know, when we were little, my dad was a salesman and we sold at the swap meets or flea markets or whatever you call it. My dad would go out and buy all the pictures in the hotels that were being remodeled and we would take it out to a swap meet or flea market at the second and third grade. I still remember walking around selling these pictures for $2 each of which you would get 25 cents from, which is actually not bad as a percentage, you know, you're getting a 12 and a half percent commission on these pictures. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it all, we all start somewhere, right? Uh, I love it. it. It sounds like we had very solid backgrounds <laughs> to that. Yeah. I always say that, you know, we weren't poor. We always had food on the table, but you know, it was low middle class. Like we also didn't take vacations or eat out or do any of that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. 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 No, we, we ate out twice a year. Twice uh, a year. <laughs> there you go. All right. Yeah. And, one other question, looking back before we get into what you're doing now and all the great things all we're doing, what was your first deal of any type that you can remember? It could be something small when you were a kid or something early in your career, whatever comes to mind. Oh, first deal. Yeah, when we were at the flea markets, I was in the fourth grade. And when we'd walk around selling the pictures, we would buy bicycle parts and any other thing early in the morning that we thought we could sell later in the day. And I remember buying a... um a, a mini bike for $15 and my brothers and I were so excited about it. And we brought it back to where, you know, you had to stand at the flea market. And by the end of the day, the mini bike was gone. My dad had sold it for $35, probably for two reasons. One is he didn't want us to have a mini bike, which was probably good thinking. And the other is that there was some money to be made. And then he split the profits with, with us. I love so it. He I took love 10 it. and my brothers and I took 10. So I was on one half. Let's say I was on the buy side of that deal. Right. It sounds like in a, in maybe a uh, non-consenting or unwilling business <laughs> partnership with the father as well. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when I was in junior high, I ran, you know, they have these flea markets and swap meets and I ran a cactus stand out there for two years. I worked for a guy for six months and he went on vacation and never came back. And I bought his inventory from him and ran the cactus stand. I knew I didn't want to work in a flea market the rest of my life. Let's just go with that. I love it. I, you know, I love the entrepreneurial backstories of successful people because it's oh, wow. always fascinating. All right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Allworth's trajectory. And, you know, obviously the industry has evolved where there's so many more deals and so much more money in the space, right? Equity capital, debt capital, that kind of stuff. Now, talk to us a little bit about, you've had significant growth, especially in the last number of years. And so talk a little bit about the shift from just the organic growth to doing a lot more inorganic, you know, who your capital partners are and what kind, you know, and 
and the deal flow you've been doing over the last number of years. So I'll start at the beginning. Scott Hansen and I met, we worked at a life insurance company together 30 years ago. Um, he, his cubicle was next to mine and we worked there for a couple of years and decided we were going to go out on our own. So we leased some space from an accountant and bought some furniture and a couple of computers. And I had $10,000 in an IRA I rolled out for 60 days for the capital to start the business. And I remember our stated goal was to get $100 million under management. I, you know, I told my wife, we get $100 million, we're set. We are set, right? That's a bad month now. And we built it and built it. And then early on, we started with this a salaried advisor model, which is rather than make people partner, they would be, work on a salary and we would generate the appointments for them. So I had a call center back in the day, still do. And we would do outreach marketing, radio, television. I've been doing this. You mentioned the podcast and radio show for 27 years. So that's kind of where it, it grew and we grew and we grew. And when we were at, I think we were probably 22, 22 years into it. And I've had a couple other ventures in the meantime, I had a company where we taught investment advisors how to market to telecom communication workers, where we we pulled about five and a half billion dollars into those offices. And I just got paid a percentage that never landed on my platform. I started and sold the largest reverse mortgage company in the U.S., Scott Hansen, and I did with Pete Ingleken, who's my chief operating officer. Uh, So I'd been doing a couple things on the side, but the whole time running at the time, Hansen McLean. So Seven or eight years ago, we got to about $2.4 billion. We had three offices in Sacramento. We had opened an office in Walnut Creek, California, and one in Denver, just to see if we could take this thesis we had about growing the business and going to markets that we weren't in and starting from scratch. And it worked. And we got to about $2.4 billion. And we're we're approached, like many of the people listening to your podcast now, approached by many, many, many firms on a continual basis. And we met with a couple of them. We said, no, no, we're not going to do this. And then we came to the realization that we couldn't grow. My my risk tolerance had pretty much hit its limit, as did Scott Hansen's, which when I say hit its limit, more money would not have necessarily made my life better. But less money would have. And I had already had a capital event with the sale of the reverse mortgage. So, you know, retirement was pretty stable. But, you know, I have, it's really important for me to stay engaged. Mostly, more probably more important for my family that I stay engaged. It's someone other than them continually, right? Just somewhere to get out of the house and do something productive. And so uh, we bumped into Parthenon, which was a firm that had been talking to us, and we did a deal. And quite frankly, you know, it was probably one of the best decisions I had ever made. They were great capital partners, you know, uh, still respect them today. We still talk to Parthenon, great capital partners, good people. And they brought a level of sophistication to our business that was beyond what we were doing, not beyond what we were capable of. Just beyond, they made us think about us being bigger than ourselves. And in less than four years, we went from $2.4 billion to $10 billion under management. We hit our five-year stretch goal in about three and a half years. And then we, we traded again to a new capital partner, which is Light in Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. Great, again, great capital partners. They both have different styles, but both of them that a great value to the business. The, probably the biggest thing is I quit running my business for cash flow and started running it for, for value, for long-term 
capital appreciation and then added more services that you can't when you're small. You know, even at a billion dollars and two billion dollars, we didn't have tax. So now we bought a tax practice and integrated that. So we either discount or give away tax to, for free to, to clients. We have an integrated services where we actually have an insurance desk, if you will. So if any of our 110 advisors has questions about insurance, they don't have to go out looking. It just turns over in-house. We have integrated estate planning, hired an estate planning attorney to review wills and trusts. You know, we added 55 IP for tax loss harvesting, direct indexing, you know, SMAs, just the, the menu of our investment options is expanded probably by tenfold. And then the sophistication with software, hiring a really high quality CTO and a, a chief financial officer is, is, and chief legal officer, which quite frankly, you know, every small firm would like, you have to get to scale in order to make it work. Sure. Sure. Um, so since you brought in the capital partners, give us an idea of how much, you know, like the deal volume that you've done over the last number of years and, you know, uh, on, on the, on the M&A side. So I think we've done, don't quote me on this. I think we've done 23 or 24 deals since we took capital, which was probably five, a little bit over five years ago. But I didn't build out my M&A team to scale until the last 18 months. So it was myself and one other person that were doing that prior to this, this last capitalization with Lightyear in Ontario. And now I've got six people on my team and seven people on the finance team that helped me. And then I have an integration team to integrate these firms that we call mergers and partnerships, not mergers and acquisitions. The reason is there's an awful lot of equity that normally gets rolled over and we are looking for like-minded people, how they feel about, you know, financial planning is being the backbone of our offering tax, estate planning, and obviously asset management. So, yeah, so that's a perfect segue. So let's talk about what your model is. So you mentioned equity, right? You know, obviously we don't need anything confidential on any particular deals, but in general, what is the model? Who, who are you looking at? So let's at a high level. You know, you hear this distinction between aggregator and integrator, and it's it's a little unofficial, right? Some <laughs> elements of both, but like, you know, where on that spectrum are you? What's the model? Some cash, some equity. Who are you looking to attract? Um, Give us that. We're, we're, you know, there are aggregators and integrators. And we actually, we have a piece. If you go to um, a, a shameless promotion, All Worth Financial Partners, uh, we yep. have a piece that actually gives the breakdown, the difference between what a real integrator is and what a real aggregator is. We are a integrator. We intra, there we go. Easy for me to say. The whole business is shifted onto a common platform. Yep. And, and the reason for that is twofold. One, it's to free up time for the partners and advisors to do what they really like to do, which is, you know, more normally go out and generate business or meet clients. The other is it brings tremendous amounts of efficiencies through technology and process. So, when you're a small business, and I've been a small business, like every firm I've talked to, I think I might have a unique perspective from this being this co-CEO of a $15 billion firm. Having started out, like many of the firms that we integrate with, I wasn't some, you know, I didn't come from a custodian. Not, not to say there's anything wrong with it, but I remember what it was like to have $50 million or $500 million or a billion dollars under management. I remember what the staffing issues were like and technology. And so the idea behind this is that if we intra 
upgrade all of this, then what we're going to do is bring mass efficiencies to the organization. And small businesses have a tendency to throw people at problems. Yep. And businesses that get the scale have a tendency to throw people, process, and technology at problems. Right. You know, that's that's why there's efficiency. That's why it's, you know, it's happened. By the way, this has happened in, let's go through the industries. It's happened in uh, waste collection, right? So a good friend of mine owns Waste Connections, and they've rolled up 3,000 firms, right? It's happened in uh, health foods with Whole Foods, which was a roll-up. Uh, yep. And the last big one uh, they bought was, anyway, it'll come to me in about five minutes. So these are all roll-ups that have been, ha it's happened in property and casualty for years and years, both on the commercial and residential side. Um, what makes it difficult for financial services is the models are so different for, for every firm. So some are, we only work with these types of clients. We only do individual stocks and others are, we only work with, you know, this client and we only do this portfolio. And we've built a platform that will actually allow for all of that. So mid-market, upper market, right? It doesn't, you, you know, I use the analogy of the Marriott Corporation. Yep. Right? So sometimes, well, I'll tell you the story. I was in, in New Orleans with my wife. Um and we had gone there for the weekend. I love history. New Orleans has great, great history. And we were staying at a Ritz-Carlton. We went to dinner one night and we were walking back to the hotel and we came up to the building and there was the building and it said Courtyard by Marriott on the side. And I, I said to my wife, I know this is the building. We walked around the second side of the building and there was a Marriott entrance. I walked around the third side of the building and there was a Ritz-Carlton cool. entrance. Yep. And you're like, okay. This is, I said to my wife, she didn't know what I was, she's like, what? And I'm like, this is brilliant. I mean, they get all the efficiencies out of the plant and operations, three price points with a similar but not identical product. It, I'm like, this is, this is a firm I want to build. I want to be able to serve the 10 to $15 million account. And I want to be able to serve the, you know, million to 5 million and below that. And by the way, having smaller account balances allows you to actually grow your own financial advisors, mm. right? Yeah, and, and listen, and that's such an issue in this industry, right? Is, is you know, is the, you know, is, is that gap in the younger advisors because, uh, you know, most of the, of the firms that are not of your size and even frankly, some of the larger firms, right? You know, I mean, the lack of training, the lack of, you know, ability, lack of people coming in, which has always kind of shocked me. I'm, I'm sort of half jealous as a lawyer. I'm looking, wait a second. You know, I, I, we're both in service businesses. We both deal with sophisticated and great clients, but you guys have recurring revenue quarterly paid up front, pulled out automatically from the accounts. Like what a business model, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and you really get to help people. So it's always sort of shocked me how poorly generally the industry has done about bringing up and training and, and, you know, getting new folks to, you know, a new blood into the industry. Well, well the, the, there's a, there's a reason behind that. All right. And the reason is the hardest part of being a financial planner, investment advisor is actually getting the right person to come or to reach out to your firm to engage you. And so the best sales guys or marketers may not be the best financial advisors and the best financial advisors may not be the best marketers. So we've taken that and we split them in two where 
I actually have 26 people in my marketing department, and I have a call center that schedules the appointments for our advisors. Now, some advisors will go out and get their own, and they are compensated for that differently than that are set by. But think about this. How many retail offices does Charles Schwab and Fidelity have in the United States? Right? A lot. Right? I mean, a lot. And do you think any of those people are actually out there getting in their own clients? Or is Fidelity and Charles Schwab actually, you know, using their marketing muscle and their brand in order to get qualified people in front of advisors? Right. right? And is Schwab any better than my firm or let's say a Mercer or a WAG or Fidelity any better than any of the others? I would I I would say no. In fact, I in fact I would say that there is many reasons that you should be wanting to use an independent advisor. No disrespect to Schwab or Fidelity because they have figured it out. Yep. There is no question. So not only are we proud of our asset management, but our financial planning, but the machine that generates the interest from people that are potential clients is really, really important. So I can bring an advisor that doesn't know how to or want to go out and generate their own business, right? And I schedule their appointments for them, which is how you actually can build a long-term sustainable company because you're not reliant on individual personalities to go to the golf course or to the church function or the rotary or wherever in order to generate that business. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's talk a little bit about, so you know, you've got a uh, let's say an independent firm of whatever size or, or, and you can tell me, I don't know if you do also doing, you know, IBD teams or anybody out of wirehouse, but whoever it may be, you know, who, who are you focusing on? And then what, you know, general are, are the components of the deal? You mentioned obviously equity. I'm sure there's some cash. So what, talk to us, you know, what, what it looks like. So in today's environment, and these are different than how you were pricing deals, you know, six months or even at, you know, even six months ago, most certainly a year ago, we do take teams out of the IBDs, the independent broker dealers that operate under someone's corporate RIA. And I do own a broker dealer. Unfortunately, I own a broker dealer and it's not to add assets to that broker dealer other than the firms that partner with us. So if you go to an IBD and pull out an IAR, an independent advisor representative out of an IBD, you are most certainly going to find some broker-dealer business that pays trail there. Right. And so we want to give full value for that. And, and by the way, we respect the advisors that want to keep those clients because they made a promise to the client to take care of them. We will pull those out. We pull up pure RIAs. We haven't done any wirehouse yet, mostly because how you price them is on the assets that come over and there's a lot of risk there. I have consulted with many firms that were at wirehouses and I said, you know, you're probably not ready to sell to uh, a, a roll-up firm yet. You might want to make this intermediate step to become independent first and then do it. The story actually probably plays better and it's probably better for the advisor and the client. And then we do the deals, you know, right now we're doing them based on revenue. 
and it's based on revenue either 24 or 36 months out. Uh, and the reason for that is it allows them to get value for anything in their pipeline. It allows them to hopefully have time for the markets to recover. Yep. Which is, you know, many people say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to do a deal right now because, you know, my revenue's down, my EBITDA is down. You know, the worst thing about our business is, you know, the EBITDA is, I mean, your, if your EBITDA drops by 25, if your revenue drops by 25%, your EBITDA drops by, you know, 30, 40, 50%. That's right. Depending on the margins you're working on. And so we're, we're pricing them that way so that there's a, stock component anywhere from 20 to as much as 35%, depending upon how we feel about that particular team okay. and whether the advisors plan on staying around and helping us grow, right? If you want to stay for the next 10 years and become part of the story, we want you to participate in as much equity as, as we can allow. And then we'll typically put anywhere between 30 to 35% on the back end at either uh, 18, 36 months or somewhere in between the, the two of those. Great. So, so you, you mentioned a number of the aspects of your value proposition to these advisors, right? You know, whether it's the, the integration, the technology, the different expansion of the offerings, you know, you, you have the ability for you to generate business for some of the, especially the newer, smaller guys. You know, you mentioned a bunch of it. Is there anything else you want to mention about the value proposition to these advisors? Because as, as you know, I mean, there's a lot of people going after them. So, you know, wh why else would they consider all work? So part, part of it is, it is our growth. Our growth has been, you know, and everyone in our industry talks about AUM. AUM this, AUM that, great. Where I shop, they don't take AUM. They only take money. And so, and so when you look at the business, uh, you know, forget it's an investment advisory business. You wouldn't compare, you know, two businesses to each other just based on their sales if I was going to, you know, throw my lot in with them. I'd want to look at the revenues per, per versus the AUM and the profitability and the growth and profitability and the cap rate, the capitalization of the company itself. So that's one. And the other is, you know, I didn't man, mention, we have an analytics and insight team that actually is highly robust, which means all the data that we collect in the information, we put in a data warehouse and then we mine it uh, for insights. And by that, let's say I'm going to run a, a radio campaign. I will know what the cost of the campaign is. I will know what leads came from the campaign. I will know how long they actually lived in the funnel. I will know per dollar of AUM, what that dollar, how much it cost me per dollar of AUM. And then the idea is that you A-B test this stuff constantly in order to gain insights and become much more efficient at it. And then once you do that, you want everything to be repeatable, measurable, and scalable. Can I repeat the activity? Can I measure my inputs and outputs? And can I scale it in multiple locations all at the same time? What's happening in our industry right now, Corey, is just blowing my mind. Marketing firms that are engaging small investment advisor firms and just blowing through, through so much money. I, on my feeds, either Facebook or newspapers, I'm getting ads. I'm in Sacramento, California. I continually am bombarded by this poor guy in Columbus, Ohio, that thinks I'm going to be a perfect client for him. Right. And I, I want to just call him and say, buyer, your marketing company, right. they're, they're showing you numbers about leads and who opened this stuff. But that doesn't necessarily translate into revenues or profitability. 
and, and, and I see this continually, you know, look, I don't care how you feel about Ken Fisher or anyone feels about Ken Fisher. Don't discount that their ability to market what they're doing and that they are crystal clear of who they want as a client and how they're going to get there and their offering. No question. And listen, despite some challenging things that came up for him, they, you know, they, 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 they there was a bump in the road and, they, and they've grown significantly since then. So that's proof of the, of exactly what you're saying. Again, whatever judgment you may or may not have, the point is marketing works. Yeah, yeah. You may not like the messenger, but don't, don't, don't confuse it with the message. So it, it does work and it, you know, it, it allows an organization to actually, you know, take interns, like you point to a half dozen interns from college that then became paraplanners, that became associate advisors, that then became advisors over a relatively short period of time because we fostered their growth in the organization. And quite frankly, the business that we're in today, most advisors my age, I turned 60 this year, whether we want to talk about it or not, our clients subsidize the growth of our business through the compensation programs that used to be used 30 years ago. Yeah. Right? You can, we can pretend that we didn't get paid upfront commissions, but we did. Um, and that was the way it was, right? That was the way it was. Can you so, imagine opening up a, today, like, where Scott Hansen and I took 10 grand and opened up a business. If you run this fee-based RIA model at 1%, we wouldn't have lasted six months. Right. Right. right? We could pretend it didn't happen. And the clients knew it too, because there were no alternatives. So, so, so let's apply this, you know, you, you talk about the ability to market and grow and support. You know, let's, you know, one of the things that comes up for some firms that are selling, whether it's, I mean, certainly people are at different stages of their career, right? Somebody who's, who, who wants to come in and is in, a mode of looking for a succession solution is one thing. Younger advisors who have more runway are one thing. And then we have this classic issue of having, you know, the G G one, you know, the founders of G2, right? Where they have where they're in the same firm, they have different interests. Somebody maybe have a, a much shorter time frame and a desire to just, you know, mainly cash out. Obviously, hopefully most of them, as we know this industry, do want to make sure their clients and employees are taken care of and they have good intentions. But in terms of their ongoing, they may have a year or two or whatever, and then they're phasing out. Whereas G2 is, is, is looking at this and saying, wait a second, I have clients right now is exactly in that situation that, you know, the G2 is saying, well, are we selling too early? Right. You know, we know senior guy is pretty much ready to be done, but you know, can we grow on our own more quickly than if we, you know, are we leaving money on the table because we're selling at an earlier stage? So, I, I mean, it's logical that everything you just talked about helps answer that question, but why don't you just specifically apply it to that conversation of the value proposition out to these firms that might have younger folks or G2, you know? So, so first of all, let's, let's go with this premise. No business owner slash entrepreneur ever said, hey, sign me up for a corporate job and give right. me a infrastructure that I need to report into. Right. It, it has never been said. So with that in mind, you know, our job is that when we integrate a firm, it's to find out actually what people's motivations are. So, a perfect example, we integrated a firm in Walnut Creek, and this gentleman, great advisor, said, look, I just want to go out and generate business and and work through the first couple of years with the, the client, and then I want out someone else to, you know, the ongoing relationship. And And by the way, clients are fine with that. I think oftentimes advisors overestimate their appeal to clients. Um, so clients or other ones where, 
you know, I did one here locally where he wanted to leave the business. And I said, just, you know, give it a year, a year and a half. I said, I don't think you want to leave the business. I think you want to leave parts of the business. And so why don't we actually not make a decision as to when you're going to leave? Why don't you get to see if you actually like what you're doing since you don't have to run a business anymore? And he's happy as could be. He interacts with his clients. You know, we, we actually, he sits in a little standalone office with a couple other advisors in it. He's happy. He's, 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 not, he's not leaving the business. But G2, you have to determine what they want as well. And oftentimes when we roll over equity, it's not split between all of them equally. Right. So G2 might take a larger chunk than G1, you know, and sometimes, you know, G1, they, they, they just want to be the elder statesman or stateswoman and just kind of hang around. And that's fine for a period of time. Got it. Great. So let's, uh, let's get a little more macro now. You know, we have some interesting factors in this industry. You alluded to before, before, you know, talking about a little bit of the evolution, the maturation and having experience like I do in other industries where there's been maturity and roll-ups and, you know, and aggregation and whatever. And at the same time, so, you know, I, I, I mean, I'll give my hand away a little bit. I, I think the long-term trends continue to be in favor of, you know, many, many more deals. And, and certainly we see the breakaway flow of new advisors coming independent, continue to be strong. So there's, even as this consolidation on one end, we have new blood coming in. And at the same time, at least in the short term, there are some potentially worrying trends, you know, things people are focusing on, whether it's the markets being, you know, last couple of days, I think when we're recording this, we're, we're okay. But, you know, the markets being down, inflation, you know, being up, all of these things, war in Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the big R word that everybody is talking about, which I, uh, you know, I always am worried about this self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, kind of thing. So I don't like to play into that, you know, but there are some headwinds. So, you know, what do you see on a more macro level for a firm like yours and some of your competitors who, you know, the deal volumes have been crazy and how do you see some of these at least immediate potential headwinds affecting? And so back to an earlier comment I made, Whole Foods, the last big purchase they made was Wild Oats, by the way. And then that's when they started growing organically. So it was inorganic, inorganic. So so what we're seeing is that's taking place in our industry as well, where you're seeing bigger and bigger companies actually start pushing themselves together. And then you're seeing firms like us that, you know, the biggest one we've done was $2.8 billion integration, AUM, and I could get into the profits at some point in time. And the smallest one I've done is $100 million, which is a guy I've known for 30 years. Right. So, you know, what's surprising in this marketplace is, is I thought some SPACs would try to take out different firms. And, and there was some hints at it, but most of them look like that they never actually came to fruition. Yep. And we're now starting to see some larger firms come together. I don't think that we're going to see a big publicly traded large firm anytime soon. What I suspect is that this will probably run in the private markets for 8, 10, 12 more years. Yep. And that we will see some integration of larger firms. But at the end of the day, I mean, the big blowout will be two or three large, you know, when I say large, it'll be 40, $50 billion firms pushing themselves together for a national footprint. I think that's where we're going to end. Um, and then you'll see a couple more of those. There'll be, you know, large regional players and a few nationals. There are headwinds, right? The cost of money has gone up and don't pretend that firms that are aggregate and integrate don't use leverage. Absolutely do use leverage. And that the, the earnings are down. The EBITDA is down for many companies, as we talked about earlier, which actually 
you know, makes access to debt either more expensive or less available, which I would expect will start to slow some of these deals. But but the capital backers are willing to throw in a lot more money, a lot, lot more money. You're seeing, I just read another one today where a broker dealer, you know, just took private equity to actually create their own integration machine. I think a lot of that happening on the broker dealer side is to actually stop their IARs from actually leaving their platform. So they're trying to figure out how do I give fair market value to the IARs while at the same time getting an arbitrage move, playing off their balance sheet, but using some outside capital as well. I I expect that we'll continue to see that. I don't know how that helps a lot of the independent advisor representatives that are broker dealers because many of them aren't happy with their broker dealers today. I shouldn't say all, but many of them. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question. So the macro is, I think that the, the, the deal flow is actually going to continue. Um, I think that there's some buyers in the marketplace that are buying that don't quite understand the business as well as they should. And that there will be some blowups here in the next few years with firms that were either paid too much for or poorly run. I'm starting to see small firms push themselves together. For no other reason, you're shaking your head, Corey, for no other reason than to make themselves look bigger than they are so that they could get a higher multiple. Yep. I mean, I, I saw one was so distinct. One was like a robo slash, you know, just a really, you know, low end offering. The other was a high net worth and somehow they were all one, you know, and I had to be able to see through all of that. And, and you know, I'm like, how did, what? Where where are you? How long have you, what, a year now? But no systems talk to each other. Yeah, I've seen firms that have come to market that have purchased a bunch of small, you know, 80, 90, $100 million AUM firms and then not integrated them, but come to market as a single unified, you know. But just trying to get the high multiple because they're bigger, you know. Yeah, yeah, you've seen, you've, yeah, you've obviously, you've seen enough of these deals, but but dollars will be paid for well-run companies. That will be, and the others, there's a market for it. Someone's going to buy that small deal and not really know what they're buying, which is fine too, right? Um, yeah. And I also think like you have the benefit of not only studying, but I have actually been involved in, you know, other industries where this, they've matured and there've been consolidation roll-ups and that kind of stuff. And despite the fact that we've come, uh, I mean, a usually long way over the last five or 10 years, I mean, I, I remember you know, probably a dozen years ago, you could barely find lending capital in the space, you know, forget any private equity or, yeah. or you know, capital partners. So, so that it's come a long, long way. I, you know, we're still in a, in terms of the full maturation of an industry, we're still pretty early. Way young. Yeah. Yeah. Way, way young. Yeah. So. Like maybe second inning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Way, way, way young. And, and quite frankly, firms like myself and a few others are, are getting very, very good at, at pricing these deals and recognizing, you know, what's good or bad, just right out the gate. Like, I'm not even going to waste any time bidding on this or talking to these firms after, you know, we get a sense of how they run their business. And, uh, y- y- you know, but there's there's a marketplace for every firm out there. And there are so many small firms, so many, but the average age, you know, and half of them are going to just retire and not tell anyone, right? Which is an advisor's old trigger. I just quit taking clients. I just service the ones I have and I'll play it forever. Um, and listen, you know, in a way, I mean, a lot of people have judgment on that, but in a way, that's one of the beautiful things about this industry, right? I mean, you know, you can, you know, you you can 
make very di- various living and run out the string and die with your boots on and so to speak. And that's right. You know, and I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a guy who looks at the enterprise value and says, well, why wouldn't you monetize that? But you know, the fact that you have both of those options that do very, very well in this space is, is, is a beautiful thing in a way. Well, you, you know, when we talk about monetizing, so, you know, the first few deals I did, they made as much or more money in the recapitalization as, as they did actually on the first payment. Right. right. And so, you, you know, people are like, why should I sell now if my firm's going to be worth more? And I'm like, because we got stock here and my firm is growing. You know, if, you're, if yours is growing at 10 and we're growing at 30, you know, or 35, right? Are, are they not? Is it my number better than yours? Right. Because and it's, it's on both counts, right? First of all, the growth rate. And second of all, the, mul- the arbitrage and the multiple because your multiple is going to be higher, right? That, so. That's right. Right. That, that's how, we, you know, obviously you make money is, you know, you have to, you know, you've got to, the three things we look at is culture first. And then, you know, do we believe in financial planning and the investment management has got to be similar, but not identical. And then the economics of the deal for both you and me. But then once we're there and we're all on the same team, um, it look, it's any firm that's coming in and saying that the integration's easy and don't worry about it and it's seamless, that's not true. Right. I'm just telling you. It right. it is there's a lot of moving parts. That's why I have a team that's that's dedicated to that. But it's not easy. It's just it's not easy. And you're you and your employees are gonna have to learn new processes, which you may or may not think that are good or bad, but, but I, you know, as I say to my partners, we have a partner form. If you think we could do something better, don't be selfish, just share it. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it, this will continue for a long, long time. We've got a ton of runway in front of us. So Pat, before I ask you my final question of the podcast, is there anything else you want the audience, the potential targets to know about you and all worth of the team? Well, not all worth, but I will tell you when I talk to firms that are not ready to to sell. This is what I always say to them. I said, look, I've been in the same business that you have for many, many years. I always take appointments and meetings with firms that I respect, be it larger or smaller than mine. I mean, I can, I have met with more national firms before I took capital and have copied. In fact, if you're stealing from me, you're stealing twice because I took it from someone else. Um, So I would just encourage you just to, you know, don't take every meeting. But if you get to sit down with the chief operating officer or chief technology officer of a firm you respect, take the meeting. It's a Zoom meeting. You're not getting, it's an hour. You're going to learn something from it. Oh, and by the way, you may decide that you're better off joining them. Obviously, that's our motivation. The other thing is when firms aren't ready to sell, or I will actually tell them what I I believe would make their firm more valuable, mm. right? And the things that make firms more valuable is don't get too esoteric. Don't, you know, babysit your own, write and babysit your own software. Firms are not buying software companies. They're buying investment advisory firms. Don't use like third, you know, some esoteric financial planning software or some CRM that no one's ever heard of. Or don't, you know, this market timing thing that if it's not broadly accepted by the industry, and you think it's your claim to fame, you're going to stay independent for a long, long time. Great advice. Great advice. Well, Pat, my, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value, my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. 
And to me, that means everything from freedom for all people around the world from oppression to why I haven't had a boss in decades and, I, and I'm an entrepreneur. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Ah, so, so the, 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 it, it's, it's freedom to choose who I, I, you know, I work with and what I do and how I serve. You know, it's obviously, it's, you know, it, God bless us. We've been born in the United States. I was just in Kenya and Rwanda and Rwanda, you know, they have a president, but the guy's been in office for 27 plus years. Don't quote me on it, but you know, is that real? I don't know. Guessing not. You know what I like, is I like to talk to people you, and I, and I have four children that are recently in the workforce. I said, you know, there's a, if I could get to the Venn diagram of what I'm passionate about, what I'm good at and what the market will pay for, yeah. and I can find that little intersection in there, then that's where I want to live. Life is not follow your dreams. Because if I was following my dream, I would ride my bike for a living, but I'm not good at it. Right, right. But it's You're a dream. You're not going to be the press anytime soon. No, not even, not even, I can't even ride with people that are fast. Anyway, that's what freedom is. And we are in a great industry. I mean, it is. And never forget at the end of the day, we get paid to serve others. We can sit in a room and talk about how we run our business. But at the end of the day, the clients are the ones that decide whether they use us or not. And that that's where it begins and ends. Love it. So thanks for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. All right. Thanks, Corey. Best of luck to you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the Deal Quest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.